If you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. We're in Genesis chapter 9 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are a few Bibles in front of you in the rack. Please feel free to use those. Genesis chapter 9 is on page 7. So if you'd like to turn there, we're going to be reading verses 18 through 29. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. Father, it is good to be in your house this morning. It is good to study your word. It is good to sing praises to you. It is good to praise you in the baptism of Aaron Cutshaw this morning. And Father, now as we come under the preaching of your word, we pray for Pastor Toby, that as he gives forth the word, Father, it would find lodging in our hearts that your Holy Spirit would use us and that you would be glorified because of it. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Recidivism. It's a word we don't use very often, but it means to fall back, to relapse, uh, to use a word that's not used much anymore, to backslide. Most commonly, we use the word recidivism to speak of those who have been in prison returning to a life of crime. But recidivism doesn't just occur in the criminal justice world. It actually occurs in our homes. Parents seek to teach and to encourage and to affirm the good that they see in their children. They correct. They discipline. They use timeouts. They give increased work. They give fewer privileges. They even use the wise and controlled discipline of spanking. And yet, even after discipline and teaching and encouragement, our children return to disobedience again and again. They are recidivists. It leaves many a parent scratching their heads, wondering 
what it will take to see change. And then there are life-dominating sins. Sins with awful consequences. Some sins that lead to the loss of freedom in prison, the loss of a job or of health or of a home or of a family, devastating effects. And yet for many, the loss of all this doesn't make a difference. People continue to go back to alcohol or to drugs or to pornography or to the rage or to the gambling or to the whatever it is that has dominated their lives. You see, it seems that no matter what happens, the, the, the pain and the, and the, the correction of, of prison, the pain of discipline in the home, the pain of the loss of various things due to our own sin, it seems that there are just times that we just go right back. That no matter what that is, no matter what that loss is or that pain is, we just go back. Proverbs 26 rings true here, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, before we start actually thinking that this is about other people, you know, it's just, this is just about the repeat offenders, or this is just about children, actually it's just about those other children. This is about those other people. Understand this, that the vivid and grotesque picture of a fool returning to his folly is the problem of all humanity. And it has been since Genesis 3. It's common to man. It's what the Bible calls slavery to sin. Sin's grip on humanity is deep and strong, and there is no temporal law so deep to loosen its grip. There is no pain so strong to overpower sin's strong grip. And that is actually the truth that is revealed in this passage. Think about what has just happened. The worldwide flood has just receded. The pain, the devastation, the death are unimaginable. Noah and his sons see it with their own eyes. It is a terrifying expression of God's judgment. But it doesn't solve the fundamental problem of mankind. The sin that stained Adam and his sons stains Noah and his sons. The fallen nature of mankind remains fallen. What we see in this picture of sin and shame is that God's judgment doesn't change man's nature. God's judgment doesn't change man's nature. Judgment punishes sin. Temporal judgments are even meant to awaken us to our need for change, but in and of itself, judgment doesn't change man's nature. This is why, by the way, we won't go into great depths, but this is why we would denounce the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. God's judgment doesn't change man's nature. 
what God knew before the flood, that every intention of man's heart is evil always, is still what God knows after the flood. In chapter 8, verse 21, he says in his heart that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And it's what we see pictured in chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. Man's nature has not changed. And so we're going to look at this this morning. That's the whole point. God's judgment doesn't change man's nature. No matter how bad the temporal discipline gets, the discipline itself does not change us. It is meant to bring us to repentance, cause us to know our need for change. But the discipline, the judgment, doesn't change our nature. We see that, first of all, because Noah's sin, we see it in Noah's sin. Noah's sin is shameful. Look at verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Now, this began means this is a new career to him. This is not him picking up where he left off. And so the scene that we're seeing here doesn't unfold. The scene that we get to in verse 21 doesn't unfold immediately. Okay, so when I just planted an apple tree that's already partially grown in my backyard, it took three years before that thing ever really started producing fruit. And according to those who know these kinds of things, it would have taken at least three years for Noah to have a a full harvest that he would even have enough grapes to be able to produce wine. So it's not like Noah got off the boat and went to a bar. That's not what happens here. I mean, we read two verses back to back, we tend to think it happens just like that, right? But that's not what happens. So Noah got off the boat and worshiped the Lord. Remember that? And now he becomes uh, a man of the soil, plants a vineyard. Once it produces wine, he enjoys it. Now, in and of itself, the, con- the consumption of wine in and of itself was not the problem here. In fact, the Bible speaks positively of wine. In Psalm 104, God speaks, uh, the Lord speaks of His provision for man, that man may, in, in causing the earth to produce, that man may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Now, in all of those things, those are all good things. God has done it. Wine to gladden the heart, oil to make the face shine, bread to strengthen his heart. Proverbs 3.10, Solomon tells his son to honor the Lord with his wealth. Why? That your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats be bursting with wine. In the prophecy of Isaiah, the lack of wine is actually a picture of the loss of joy. Isaiah 24, there is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine, all Joy has grown dark. While an abundance of wine is actually a picture of never-ending joy that God will give His people in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, and in that context, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears, not ears. I don't know why He would wipe away ears, but He wipes away... 
Who makes these things? He doesn't wipe away ears. He wipes away tears. You may not have caught that, but it drove me nuts just right now when I looked at it. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from their eyes. Who makes these things? Oh, I do. Um, so, so listen, Noah's enjoyment, initial enjoyment, wouldn't be a problem. But one day, we're not told when, and we're not told why. I listened to a man preach this text just recently who insisted this is a text on post-traumatic stress disorder. We have no indication in the text that that is true. Okay? We cannot make up and put in things that are not there. All we can do is take what the Bible gives us and seek to understand it. And all it tells us is that one day, we don't know when, we don't know why, Noah became drunk. Verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. The picture changes. All these pictures of joy when it comes to wine is not what we see here. What we see is a picture of shame. Drunkenness may be pursued and laughed at on college campuses. It may seem to be a refuge to those who are in pain, but, those in, but in the Bible it is not a refuge. It is not a laughing matter. To give over control of oneself to anyone other than God the Holy Spirit is just simply wrong. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, do not... Get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And he goes on to say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, in the Bible, drunkenness is never linked with godliness or joy. Only, only a handful of chapters later, Lot's daughters are going to get him drunk in order to commit incest. In Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar of Babylon is throwing a drunken feast and in his drunkenness calls for them to pull out the vessels that were stolen from the temple so they can drink and conquering over God and His people. And that ends up wiping out His kingdom. Drunkenness and godly joy and drunkenness and holiness never go hand in hand in the Bible. We cannot get drunk to the glory of God. It's impossible because He forbids it. And that's why, actually, beyond the joy of wine, there are warnings about wine in the Bible. So in Proverbs 23, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. 
And in Isaiah 5, God denounces those who do exactly that. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. In other words, you cannot chase after wine, chase after drink, and regard the deeds of the Lord at the same time. That cannot be the satisfaction of your soul and God be the satisfaction of your soul at the same time. In Jeremiah 2, the picture is that that the people have forsaken the fountain of living water in order to turn to cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. One of those broken cisterns is an abundance of wine. Just, Just take it away. You see, God is our refuge and strength. Wine is not our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You can just extend that to anything else that people would use to dull their senses or fill their mind. People who don't retreat to Jack Daniels, but they retreat to Ben and Jerry. Those who would dull their mind with television for hours because they want to escape the realities of life. Those who would sink themselves into fantasy football in such a way that that's all that they ever think about so they don't have to think about the real issues of life. Those who would take one extra of the pain pill that the doctor gave them so they don't have to think for a while. And on and on and on it goes. There is no refuge other than the Lord. And here's Noah. Here's Noah. The new Adam. He himself is a warning. Here he is, drunk and naked and passed out. And it is shameful. Now the text doesn't actually use the word shame. But the Bible picks up this image of drunkenness and nakedness together and uses it to describe shame in other places. So in Habakkuk 2, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Or in the condemnation of Edom, God says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. You are proud now, but you will be shamed later. It's quite a disturbing picture, isn't it? I mean, don't you kind of wonder why the Bible would leave us with this picture of Noah in our minds? You kind of wonder that? I mean, this man has been called righteous, blameless in his generation. We've seen his faith demonstrated in his obedience. And here he is lying in a pool of his own shame. Why? Why, why, why this? Well, friends, the Bible will not have us idolizing men whatsoever. Yes, he was righteous and blameless among his generation. Yes, he walked with God. Yes, he's exemplary in many ways. But dear friends, the best of men are men at best. How many of us could tell the story of someone we looked up to in the faith, whether we know them or not, and saw them fall? Such falls into sin should not destroy our faith. Such falls should destroy our faith in Men, the Psalms warn us, do not put your trust in princes. Don't trust in men. Don't trust in horses and chariots. Trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
It also doesn't mean that God isn't meant for us to look to other people as examples. Paul commands Timothy to set an example in life and in faith and in love and in purity. But our examples are not meant to be ultimates. God gives us this picture of Noah to remind us, friends, to remind us that Noah is not the hero of this story. Noah is not the hero of this story. God is. And once Noah's gone, God's redemptive story will go on. It is a reminder also to us, no matter who we are, no matter how we're used in God's purposes, we are never beyond sin and shame. If we see Noah here laying in a pool of his own shame and we say, boy, that's just awful, I would never do that. First Corinth, Paul would warn us in 1 Corinthians, beware if you think you stand, lest you fall. You see, God's judgment did not change Noah's nature. Mankind is still in need of rescue and still in need of redemption, still in need of renewal. Secondly, not only is Noah's, Noah's sin is shameful, Ham's shaming is sinful. As awful as the sin and shame of Noah is, it's actually not the main focus here. We just move on. There's nothing said there. There's not even a curse laid out against Noah. I mean, we're just going right on to what Ham does. Look at, look, I mean, so that's what we are set up with here in uh, 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now, you notice, didn't you, that Ham's the only one whose boy is listed? You know why that is? Because the people who are listening to Moses teach, who are listening to him preach, know that the Canaanites are the people they're supposed to wipe out when they go into the promised land. They're going into that land of Canaan. So when they hear the father of Canaan, they think enemies. Not just enemies they're going to clear out, but enemies they're not to be like. Enemies, God told them, don't you dare follow in their footsteps. And here's their forefather. Here's how that division initially began. His response to his father's sin and shame is like a seed that will blossom later in his descendants. So here's what he does, verse 22. Well, we'll start in verse 21. Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, there it is a second time, just to make sure in case you missed it, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, much speculation has been made about this sentence. Verse 22. Speculations regarding uh, castration, speculations regarding sexual sin, but quite frankly, speculations that aren't in the text. The text says that Ham saw. Now, this is more than a passing accidental glance. He looks intently. His father's shame was something he stared at rather than being saddened by it rather than being shocked by it. I mean, Ham's basically a voyeur here, getting pleasure out of another's sin and shame. 
Friends, staring at somebody else's sin and shame for our own entertainment as if it were a piece of art to be enjoyed robs that person of dignity and actually increases the shame of their sin. But it's worse. That's true for anybody. But it's worse when it's your father. Ham is dishonoring one that he ought to be honoring. God is clear when He commands, honor your father and your mother. But even those who don't know that command understand it. People who don't know the Word of God, who don't listen to the Word of God, understand that there is something built in them that says, I ought to honor father and mother. There's a conscience there. There's an understanding that mothers and fathers are good, that we are to honor them. Calvin notes, it is received by common consent that piety towards parents is the mother of all virtues. This ham, therefore, must have been a wicked, perverse, crooked disposition, since he not only took pleasure in his father's shame, but wished to expose him to his brethren. Just enjoying the shame of another is sinful. It just shows a crooked, wicked heart. And that's what we see next, that he exposes him to his brethren. That's the second verb here, Ham told. He told his brothers. Of this kind of exposing, Paul actually says, it is shameful to even to speak of the things that they do in secret. It is shameful even to speak of it. Proverbs 17 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. The shame is intensified. Ham's sinfulness is not just in him enjoying the shame of his father, but him wanting to spread the joy of shame to his brothers. Not just to those who do it, Romans 1 would say, but to those who give approval to it. He wants to spread the word. Listen what dad did. Let me tell you all about him. Because if you're like me, you're going to love this little bit of juicy information here. And you're going to carry it with you. Ham sins by shaming his father. Making Noah's sin a source of entertainment and gossip. And I wonder, are we entertained by the sins of others? Do we enjoy the shame of others? Do we make it the substance of our conversations? Just consider in your workplace when someone gets fired because they were found out. Or when someone who seems to do no wrong in the boss's eyes does wrong and suffers for it. Do you rejoice at their suffering? You give it a go, ha <laughs> they got theirs. Let me go over here and tell Sally what happened. It's not too far from today, is it? What about at school? This kind of thing happens in middle schools and high schools all the time. Students, do you do this? 
Do you enjoy the sin and the shame of others laughing at their misery that they bring on themselves, whether they be teachers or students? If so, you'd stop it. You're sinning against the Lord. There's no case in which we ought to rejoice in the shame of another. Now, once Noah becomes aware of what his son has done, this is where uh, verse 24 picks up. We'll come back to verse 23. He utters this prophecy, a curse on Ham's son, Canaan. Let's read verses 24 to 27. Now, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers.'" He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let them dwell in the house tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Servant of servants uh, is a way in Hebrew to take something to its highest degree. So the song of songs is the ultimate song. In, In Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities is the greatest of vanities. And here, servant of servants is the most servant-like of servants. Now, it needs to be said that this curse in Genesis 9 has been used by some in the history of our nation to insist that the enslavement of African men and women was acceptable and right because that's what Ham's descendants deserved, and they migrated primarily to the northern part of Africa. That's where the map will tell us, and they're spread from there. But that is abominable thinking. This has nothing to do with that. Yes, The descendants of Canaan will suffer. Yes, we even see, say in Judges chapter 1, that they do become servants. But this is not a text about the superiority of one ethnic group over another. Brothers and sisters, these are brothers. If you find yourself going to the Bible to defend your position of superiority over another one, just assume your hermeneutic is wrong, because it is. Canaan will suffer. But dear friends, even before we get out of the Bible, you realize it's not every single individual in Canaan. Rahab, who is a Canaanite, is rescued through faith in the one God. The queen of Sheba, who, is, who lives in the area descending from Canaan, Sheba, comes seeking wisdom from this Lord that has given Solomon wisdom. But a good question to ask is why the curse on the Son and not on Ham. Why is that? Well, we must be clear, Ham's descendants are not cursed because of Ham's sin. This is a prophecy that they will be cursed. Why? Because they are going to follow in the footsteps of Ham. 
The look and the gossip of Ham is like sinful seed, and it blossoms into the worst kinds of sexual sins among uh, Canaan and Canaan's descendants. So that Canaan's descendants moved to two cities whose names you might recognize, Sodom and Gomorrah, places that are destroyed because of sexual sin. In Leviticus 18, God specifically warns his people, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And then from there, there is a whole list of heinous sexual sins that come. The problem is that Canaan and his descendants are going to follow in Ham's footsteps. And you know what that had me wondering, dads? is if our children follow in our footsteps and they pick up where we leave off and they keep walking the same path, will they end up closer to the Lord or farther from Him? Would it result in greater godliness in the next generation or greater wickedness or greater hypocrisy which is wickedness clothed in a veneer of righteousness it's also interesting isn't it that just the look and the speech of Ham over time develops into action with his descendants And what happens here through generations, just by way of observation, through biblical counseling, happens in one lifetime with individuals. That the look and the speech are never enough. This is the nature of sin, friends. It works its way deeper and spreads out wider. It is not satisfied with your thoughts. It is not satisfied with your daydreams. It not satisfied with your talk, it wants action. It wants to gain control. It wants to develop entrenched habits. It wants to dominate your life so that it can take your life. Sin is like drinking salt water, thinking that we're looking at something that will refresh us, and we drink it, and it doesn't work. It only creates deeper thirst. And if the response is, I go for more salt water, the only thing I'm going to do is kill myself. You see, James 1 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is the progression. It happened here over generations that if you just keep reading, you would see. But how many times have I sat in a room with some man trapped in pornography where it didn't start there? It just started in his thoughts. How many times have I sat with a couple and one of them has committed adultery and they didn't just go to work one day and it happened. They went to work and they thought, oh, that person's paying me attention like like my husband or wife does not. Thus begins the fantasy. And then begins the talk, the flirting, 
Sin doesn't want to stop, dear friends. That's why Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Because sin, when it is conceived, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And that's what happens with Ham's descendants. And it happens in our lives, that progression. The problem, you see, is that God's judgment in the flood didn't change Ham's nature either. Now, even though we're going to see something great in Shem and Japheth, can you just agree with me that the basic nature of humanity has not changed, though we're going to see something that is honorable in Shem and Japheth? Shem and Japheth's response to their father is honorable. Look, all these men had seen God's judgment bring death and destruction on the whole world. And the sin that deserves judgment survived the flood. Because people survived. And so the sin that we see remain in Noah and in Ham, we see the solution just pictured in this one act by Shem and Japheth. Verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Do you hear the honor in all of that? They didn't go in to see first. They didn't, even, they didn't want to double check first. Their only concern was covering up the sin and the shame. Just cover the shame. Just walk backwards and maybe once they knew because of their legs were close to his feet, they knew they were there, they would, lay the they would lay the cloak which would serve as a blanket over him. You see, unlike Ham who saw and shamed his father, Shem and Japheth refused to look. Unlike Ham who uncovers the shame of his father by talking about it, Shem and Japheth cover his shame. And they're blessed for it. That's what happens in verse 26 and 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem is prominent here. His, I mean, Japheth's going to dwell in the tents of Shem. Did you notice what, how Lord is written there? Lord is written all capital letters, which is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So God's covenant is going to carry on through the line of Shem. We will see that. Shem is where we get the word Semite. Shem, the father of so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so, and Abram. And Japheth will find shelter in the tents of Jim. Japheth spreads from there to the north and the west. And it could simply be a picture of the Gentiles coming in to be part of the blessing that through Abram all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's unclear here. What is clear here is that the act covering Noah's shame receives a blessing. It's honorable. By the way, this is how we know nothing else, nothing nefarious happened with Ham. Because the opposite of what Ham does, look and talk, is, is what Shem and Japheth do. Not look and cover. Conceal. So not only are they blessed because they protect Noah's dignity and honor him as their father, but in covering their shame, they are imitating their God. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3? The curse is spoken. 
Adam and Eve know the shame of their own nakedness. And before God kicks them out of the garden, removes them from His blessing presence, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He covered them. This kind of covering of sin and shame develops in the Bible. It's actually one that we read about at the beginning of this service. It is a blessing of the Lord to have our sin covered. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Four verses later, by the way, the path to that was, I'm going to stop covering up my own sins, and I'm going to confess them to the Lord. Proverbs 28, 13, who, he, who, he who covers his sin, conceals them, finds no mercy, but he who confesses his sin and forsakes it finds mercy. But not only that, being covered is a picture of salvation. In Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see, here is the good news. We are all recidivists at heart. We are all just going to keep going back and back and back and back and back. No matter how painful it is in our lives. This is the problem with those places that would tell us that we need what we need is, uh, uh, is we need rehabilitation. We need to learn how to pull up our own bootstraps and move forward in a better way. That is not what we need. We don't need rehabilitation. We need regeneration. There is no ability to rehabilitate myself. It's a false notion. The good news, though, is that God is in the regenerating business. When the Bible speaks of covering our sin and shame, it's unlike the cloak over Noah because he does not simply conceal it as if to hide it. He forgives it. He takes it from us. He washes us clean. And he has done that for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ bore our sin on the cross. And as with every victim of crucifixion, he hung there naked. Public humiliation. He bore our shame. He was uncovered and killed so that we could be covered and live with his robe of righteousness to be cleansed of our sin, to dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That is what happened, happens through Jesus Christ. We are saved. We are saved by grace. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. And if you have never done that, now is the time to do that. In fact, John says in 1 John 2, around verse 23, that when Jesus comes, those who abide in Him will not be ashamed. We will not be ashamed. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. Because Jesus has been put to shame for us. 
And so we call on Him, and if you haven't called on Him, call on Him today. Plead with Him to save you. God's judgment doesn't change man's nature. It doesn't change man's nature here in Genesis. It doesn't change man's nature in uh, the time of the judges when God continually turns them over to their enemies. It doesn't change man's nature when finally Jerusalem is destroyed because of the sins of the people. God's judgment doesn't change man's nature, but God's grace in Christ does. Those who come to Christ by faith are new creations. The old has gone. The new has come. Yes, we still sin, but dear friends, we are not slaves to sin anymore. The power of sin has been broken. Our old self, Romans 6, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be done away with. So that we are no longer enslaved to sin. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't present your members to sin for unrighteousness. Present them to God for righteousness' sake. Everything has changed if you're in Christ. Everything has changed. Look, for the Christian, there is no more can't. I can't do that. I can't do that. You may voluntarily give yourself to something, but let's not say you can't. It's just that you won't right now. That's what's happening. You see, Romans 6 teaches the power of sin has been broken. This baptism this morning, this beautiful baptism of Aaron Cutshaw pictures it, the death of the old self raised to walk in newness of life and being made new by the Spirit we are able to not be like the fool who returns to his folly. We are able to not be recidivists by the power of the Spirit. Because the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us. Lives in you. Lives in you. So that if you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will live. And those who walk by the Spirit are the sons of God. May we live. Understanding the freedom that we have in Christ to glorify Him. The freedom from sin which will rip everything to shreds. May we understand that we are not trapped in recidivism. But raised to walk in newness of life. Let's take a moment to reflect on these things. And then I will pray and will be dismissed.
Our Father, we bow before you, thankful that though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, yet you have made us alive together with Christ. Thankful that though our eyes were closed to your truth and your beauty, yet your Spirit has opened our eyes. Thankful that though we were trapped in slavery to sin, we have been set free by the blood of Christ. Though we were condemned by sin, we have been justified by the blood of Christ. That though we still sin, we are cleansed by His blood. We pray that this reality that that you are the only one by your grace who can change our nature, that that reality will cause rejoicing in those of us who know you and confidence in you. We pray that we would be a people. Give us grace to live new lives. Give us grace to refuse to settle for thinking we cannot obey you. We cannot turn from sin. We cannot do what is right. We cannot be holy. You have given us your Holy Spirit to set us apart to yourself. Grow in us hatred for sin and love for righteousness. I pray, Father, for those who are here who do not know you. Cause their eyes to see your majestic love. Cause their eyes to see the hopelessness of sin and the hope of Christ. Cause their hearts to embrace him. Rescue those who are perishing, Father. We ask all of this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we are new and will be renewed one day completely and forever. In His name we pray. Amen.